go from fearful to glad to joyful. Their Savior is alive. He's standing before them. And then just to make clear that it wasn't simply a formality, Jesus repeats that phrase again. Peace be with you. And as he comes to them bearing the peace of God for them, he also comes to them to commission them. With his peace, they're going to go out into the world as the Father sent him, so he is now going to send them. John tells us that when he had said this, he breathed on them, or he exhaled, and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold the forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, there's been much debate in the church over this passage over the years. The questions surround the impartation of his spirit to the disciples and questions like this. Was this when Jesus imparted his spirit to them? Because I thought that happened at Pentecost after he ascended. Or maybe some have said, well, yes, this was an impartation of his spirit, but it was a partial impartation. And then Pentecost came and that's when they fully received the spirit. Well, these aren't easy questions to answer and we do well to recognize there is an element of mystery involved here. But personally, I would say, I think we're best to understand this event as a symbolic act of Christ that pointed toward the impending day when he would pour out his spirit upon them. Now, that might seem like a stretch to you, but think about it this way. It's a lot like when he washed the disciples' feet. And what did he do when he, this is in John 13. His hour had come, he had said already. Already, it was the hour of his death. And in that hour, in that moment, now is the time of his death. And in the time of his death, what did he do? He washed his disciples' feet, and then he declared that they were clean. That, you see, was a symbolic act and declaration of cleansing that he was about to enact through his self-sacrificial death. Though it hadn't happened yet, he acted it out, and he spoke it to them then and said, you are clean, and it was completed when he went to the cross and he shed his blood for the cleansing of their sin. And so, in a very similar way, when he exhales, he breathes out and says, receive the Spirit. This act, it was a parable. It was an act, and what he said pointed to that moment when the Spirit would come at Pentecost. This was now, because of his his resurrection, this was now the time of his ascension, and the time of his Spirit had come for his people. Now, more important than the timing of the Spirit being given to them is the connection that we need to see here between the Spirit and what he is commissioning them to do, to declare the forgiveness of sins. What John wants to see and what Jesus wanted them to understand is that he had a mission for them, but to be qualified and empowered for that mission, they would need his Spirit. Just as the Father sent him into the world and he needed to be anointed on high, To accomplish his mission, so he was sending them out, and in order to accomplish the mission he was giving to them, they too would be need need to be anointed from on high by the Spirit of God to accomplish what he was calling them to accomplish. Now, looking at that, looking at what he calls them to do, what he says they're going to do, we might wonder what Jesus meant. Look what he says. He says, if you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven. If you withhold the forgive if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. 
Now, it sounds like Jesus is giving them authority to decide, the apostles, the authority to decide who gets to be forgiven and who doesn't. But we know that forgiveness of sins is something that only God can grant. So the question is, on what basis are they to declare, on what basis are the apostles to declare once sins have been forgiven, and on what basis are they to withhold divine forgiveness? Well, we find the answer in the parallel passage in Luke's gospel. This is Luke's account of Jesus speaking to them after his resurrection. In verse 45, he, it says, Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things. So what are they to proclaim? They are to proclaim the good news, the news of Christ's death and resurrection, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins to all people. In other words, Christ gave his disciples the authority to declare forgiveness to all who believed, who received that good news about the Messiah, that he died for them and he rose again and repented of their sins. But for all who rejected Christ, forgiveness was then withheld. They were, the apostles were to speak the truth. Only in Christ can you be forgiven. And you, if you accept this message of Christ, if you repent of your sins, then our declaration to you is God has forgiven you of your sins. Now look, this is exactly what they did. If you look at Acts, here's a wonderful example of this. Peter preaching to Cornelius and his family. Acts chapter 10, verse 42. He says, and he, that is Jesus, commanded to us, who is that? That's the apostles, to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead, to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Now, very early on, the church recognized this message that Christ had commissioned the disciples, the apostles to proclaim, was given to them as well, that they too might in the power of God's spirit proclaim forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus for all who believe. And even today, this is the message and mission of the church. To every man, woman, and child who confesses Christ as Lord, we boldly proclaim in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that their sins have been forgiven. It's, it's not a matter of what we think a man deserves. It's not a matter of what, who, who the elders of a church think is worthy of it. No one deserves it. No one's worthy. Being forgiven our sins is wholly a matter of God's grace. And there is one stipulation and one only repentance of sin or repentance of sin and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for everyone who repents of their sins and, and believes in the Lord Jesus Christ confesses faith in Jesus Christ we declare to them your sins have been forgiven in Jesus name now some might say well that that's an audacious thing to do to think that the church and the officers of the church, the messengers of the, the ministers of the gospel, to think that they have a right to declare who is forgiven and who isn't. How audacious. 
But it's not, listen, it's not by our own imaginations that we do such things. It is in obedience to the command of our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, that we do this. Every single time the elders baptize someone and say, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you belong to him. We are rightly declaring to them the forgiveness of their sins. Your sins have been forgiven. Just think about when we do the prayer of confession. Oftentimes after the prayer of confession, the leader will say, stand and hear the assurance of your pardon. And he will assure you, the elder will assure you that you have, in Jesus Christ, you have been forgiven. What gives him the authority to do that? It's not by his own authority. That authority has been given to him by Jesus Christ. He is is acting in the place of gospel minister at that time. He is doing what Christ has commissioned him to do. Not withholding forgiveness from, from anyone who repents and believes, but Offering to every single person who repents and believes, say, assuring them, you've been forgiven in Jesus Christ. You've been forgiven in Jesus Christ of your sins. Now let's look at Thomas. Verse 24, what happens with Thomas? Thomas, one of the 12, we're told in verse 24, called a twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. You can imagine how excited they were. Thomas, he can't believe you missed it. Dude, you went fishing and you could have been with it and you could have seen it. Man, you missed it. Talk about fear of missing out. Missed the greatest thing in the world. Jesus appeared to us and you weren't here. You guys, come on. No way, Thomas says. No way. No way. Unless I see his hands and the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Never going to believe. Eight days later, or as some translations put it, a week later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Or that could be translated, don't go on disbelieving. Don't be a disbeliever, but be a believer. So here, John tells us the second time Jesus shows himself to his disciples. This time, Thomas is here. He wasn't there in the first place. He had said, I won't believe unless I see the mark of the nails and place my hands into his side. Think about what Thomas was saying for a minute. What was with him saying that he would have to place his finger into the mark of the nails and place his hand into his side? You know, it's, it's interesting that Thomas didn't, didn't just say, unless I see Jesus with my own eyes, or unless I see him face to face. This is actually really important. Do you notice back in verse 20, maybe you saw this, when Jesus, John tells us that when Jesus first appeared to his disciples, he showed them what? He showed them his hands and his side. Think about that. Why did he show them his hands and his side? Here, When Jesus comes again to his disciples, he goes straight to Thomas. And what does he do? Well, first of all, this indicates to us that he knew that Thomas doubted, doesn't he? He knew Thomas had such doubts. He knew Thomas had made such a statement. But he goes right to Thomas. And what does he do? He says, he doesn't just say, look and see. You see me, Thomas? Are you happy now? He says, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. What's Jesus showing him? 
What, he had shown, what, did, what had he shown the disciples a week before? I'll tell you what he was showing them. He was showing them and it, re- it really was him. This is really him. It wasn't a ghost. It wasn't an apparition. No, he had a real body. He had a resurrected body. Though transformed, it was the same body and it was the same Jesus as before. He wasn't a lookalike. He still bore the marks of the nails on his hands. You know, for, for, for Greek, the word really doesn't just refer to this, but it refers to the whole forearm. Probably his nails went right there. He's showing them the scars, you see. Thomas is putting his hands in his side to feel where the spear had gone into his side. There was still a mark there. He's saying, look, it's, it's, it is me. This was essential for, the, for Christ's apostles as witnesses of his resurrection. It couldn't just be we saw him because the question then would be, did you really see him? Or did you see a ghost? Or did you see his spirit? Or did you have a vision? Or did you really see him? Maybe it was someone else that you thought was him, but it, it wasn't him. And furthermore, what did it mean that Christ rose from the grave? Were they simply saying, were the apostles simply saying that though he died, in his, though he died, his spirit then lived on and then appeared to them all when they were together at some time? They, they had a vision of his spirit with them? Was their testimony the testimony, you know, the testimony of the very first witnesses of the resurrection? We know he lives because he lives inside our hearts. You ask me how I know he lives. So many of you aren't old enough to remember that. He lives within my heart. Is that, were they going around singing that song? Thankfully not. It wasn't like that at all. He was bodily risen from the grave. He bore the marks of the cross and his disciples not only saw those marks, but they touched them. They saw the scars and they felt them. And yet, and yet, and yet, in this testimony of John, you see something has changed, hasn't it? Something's different. He's now glorified and in glorified state. And as almost as it were, he no longer belongs to this world. Appearing in their midst at times, even though the doors are locked and suddenly he's there, proving himself to be truly risen and alive in bodily form. And then suddenly he's gone again. This shouldn't surprise us. Remember what he had said to Mary. He said, I am ascending to my father. There is, you see, it seems a sense in which his resurrection initiated his ascension to his heavenly throne. So though he was truly risen, things were not the same as they were before. He was the same, yet his body was incorruptible. It was glorified. It was fit for eternity and eternal things as we will one day be when the Lord returns. Now, there's something else here that we should make note of, and that is the patience of our Lord with Thomas. Did you think about that? We saw his kindness when he first appeared to his disciples on the evening of his resurrection. Now we see not only his kindness, but we see his patience. 
This man who had seen the Lord perform so many miracles, this man who had the testimony of his dear friends that the Lord had indeed risen, he was in obstinate unbelief. And yet Jesus came to him and he says to him, look at, the, look at what he says. Basically says, put me to the test. See and touch the scars of my hand. Take your hand and put it in my side, Thomas. Don't disbelieve, believe, Thomas. Jesus could have very easily just left Thomas in his unbelief. You know, he had other disciples to bear witness of his resurrection. Surely he could do without Thomas. But he patiently endured Thomas's unbelief. And he mercifully, kindly and mercifully proved himself to Thomas. And he bid him to believe in him. Stop disbelief. Thomas, enough of this foolishness. No more disbelief. It's time that you believe. Isn't that, isn't that incredible? That's the kind of savior Jesus is. Christians should know this. So many of you have attested to this. You know that just like, like he was patient with Thomas and merciful to Thomas, so he, he was with you. And so he still is with you. You know, some of you persisted in unbelief for years. Critical, skeptical, mocking unbelief before you came to Christ. For years you were in that state. Many of us, maybe that wasn't you, but maybe it wasn't you, but you know someone. You know someone who's a Christian now, but for a long time, they just refused to believe in Christ for lack of evidence. You'll have to prove it to me. And yet in, in God's mercy, in, in Christ's mercy, the Lord didn't, he didn't just leave them to their own unbelief and their own destruction. He sought them because he had bought them with his redeeming love and he loved them before they knew him. And all their love was due him. And he plunged them, as the song says, he plunged them to victory beneath the cleansing flood. The flood of his blood poured out for them. Though it wasn't the same as the way he did with Thomas, he proved himself to them. He cast out their doubt and he bid them to believe. Thomas's story, you see, it reminds us how patient our, and merciful our Savior is. That's an encouraging thought, isn't it? Not only for our sake and how, how Christ has been patient, if you think about your own life, how Christ has been patient and merciful toward you, how he has at various times cast out your doubts, beckoned you to believe, beckoned you to continue to believe in him. It's also encouraging, though, when you consider friends and loved ones in your life who are persisting now in unbelief and skepticism like Thomas. Isn't it encouraging when you think about them? You look at Thomas and then you think about them. The greatest skeptic can become a believer. The greatest sinner can be turned into a saint. The greatest mocker can be converted into a God-fearing worshiper. And how is that possible because we have a merciful and we have a patient savior. Well, let's look at Thomas's response. What is, what, how does Thomas respond? Verse 28, Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Thomas declares the truth. He makes the good confession. And his confession, listen, stands in John as the pinnacle of all human confessions of Christ thus far. This is the pinnacle of them all. Not only does he call Jesus my Lord, but he call, also calls him my God. 
which is a clear affirmation of the deity of Christ. Here is Thomas giving honor to Jesus as the eternal Son of God, co-equal in glory with the Father. It's Thomas's confession here then that completes the circle in John that he had begun all the way back, if you trace all the way back to the prelude of his gospel. This is the completion of John's introduction at the very beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In verse 14, and the Word, that is the Son, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory Glory as of the only begotten from the Father. And verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, or as some translations put it, the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. He has made him known to us. And then look at Jesus' response. Look at verse 29. Jesus doesn't scold Thomas for giving him a title and honor that belonged to God alone. No, give up, get up, Thomas. No, 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 don't worship me. No, not at all. Rather, Jesus receives Thomas's confession as evidence of true faith in him. This is what true belief in Jesus Christ looks like. It looks like confessing him as the eternal son come in flesh for the salvation of man. And so Jesus recognizes his faith, but he points out that it was because he saw him that he believed. Some translations have that not as a question, but as a statement. In the NIV, for example, he says, because you have seen me, you have believed. And then he goes on to say, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Jesus knowing that upon the testimony of these apostles, there will be thousands, millions who will come to faith by their testimony, foresees that. And he says, blessed are those who have not seen yet believe. And then here's where John gives us his perfect purpose statement. We've read it so many times throughout, throughout our series in John. This is where it lands, verse 30. Now, Jesus did, the, did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John and the apostles were witnesses of all these miraculous signs that Jesus had performed, which John recorded for us. And here is the crowning sign of all the signs the one that prompted Thomas the unbeliever to be a believer and make the good confession. It was the sign of his resurrection. The one and the same Jesus who was crucified on Friday walked out of the tomb on Sunday. He appeared to his disciples and he stood among them bearing the marks of his crucifixion for them to see and to touch. And in his crucifixion, he proved himself to be the Christ, the Messiah, and the eternal Son of God. And John is saying he wrote his gospel and it has come down to us now so that we might be the ones whom Jesus spoke of when he said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. For though we do not share in the privilege of the apostles' experience of seeing the risen Lord, we do get to share in their faith. Ours is a faith that not, does not come to us by sight, but from hearing 
and hearing through the word or declaration of Christ that has been delivered to us. And because of that, because the word of Christ has come down to us, we believe and we have life in his name. Perhaps you're here and you've been a part of this Gospel, Gospel John series and you don't believe. Well, today is the day of belief. You have the very testimony of one of the apostles who stood there, who saw the resurrected Jesus. And you have this wonderful promise that if you believe you can have life in his name, today is the day of faith. 1 Peter 1, 8 says, though you have not seen him, speaking to believers, it says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And that's good news, isn't it? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that this testimony of the apostles has come down to us so that we can know and be assured that you really did, your son really did raise from the grave, that he is alive and well, and that he gives life to all who repent of their sins and trust in him. We praise you and we thank you for this wonderful gospel message. It's in his name that we pray and for his sake. Amen.